Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 293. Today's big Bible question, how do we pray with power and impact by praying like Elijah? So happy Thursday to you, friends. Today's Bible readings are short and sweet and include a new book for us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, as well as 1 Kings 18, Psalm 105, and Ezekiel 48, the last chapter of this very long book. Now, we're going to focus on the prayer life of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, and the reason for this is that kind of the New Testament book of James looks back on the life of Elijah as a great example of prayer for modern Christians. And we read in James 5.13, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. So 1 Kings 17 and 18 are just some of my absolute favorite chapters in the Bible to read and teach on. I taught many years of Old Testament and New Testament survey at a college in Alabama. And even though we only had eight sessions of lecture per quarter, I always spent significant time in one of those lecture times on Elijah in 1 Kings 17 and 18 because the lessons we learned from Elijah are just so important to our spiritual walk to learning how to pray with power and effectiveness. And today's lesson in prayer is incredibly simple, incredibly potent, and unfortunately, rarely, rarely, rarely put into practice. Now, Jesus sums it up as succinctly as possible in Luke 18, 1, in five words. Always pray, never give up. I'll say it again in case you missed it. Always pray and never give up. So let's read 1 Kings 18 together. I know your main attention is probably going to be fixed on the showdown on Mount Carmel, and that's important, and that's significant, and yes, it's interesting. It's actually a little funny, too. But we're going to focus on the aftermath of that showdown when Elijah prayed for rain. 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. After the long time, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. Go and present yourself to Ahab. I will send rain on the surface of the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. The famine was severe in Samaria. Ahab called for Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Obadiah was a man who greatly feared the Lord and took a hundred prophets and hid them, fifty men to a cave, and provided them with food and water when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets. Ahab said to Obadiah, Go throughout the land to every spring and to every wadi. Perhaps we'll find grass so we can keep the horses and mules alive and not have to destroy any cattle. They divided the land between them in order to cover it. Ahab went one way by himself and Obadiah went the other way by himself. While Obadiah was walking along the road, Elijah suddenly met him. When Obadiah recognized him, he fell face down and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? It is I, he replied. Go tell your Lord Elijah is here. But Obadiah said, What sin have I committed that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent someone to search for you. When they said he is not here, he made that nation or kingdom swear they had not found you. 
Now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah is here. But when I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord may carry you off to some place I don't know. Then when I go to report to Ahab and he doesn't find you, he will kill me. But I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Wasn't it reported to my Lord what I did when Jezebel slaughtered the Lord's prophets? I hid a hundred of the prophets of the Lord, fifty men to a cave, and I provided them food and water. Now you say, go tell your Lord Elijah is here. He'll kill me. Then Elijah said, As the Lord of armies lives, in whose presence I stand today, I will present myself to Ahab. Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him. Then Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is that you, the one ruining Israel? He replied, I have not ruined Israel, but you and your father's family have, because you've abandoned the Lord's commands and followed the Baals. Now summon of all of Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, along with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab summoned all the Israelites and gathered the prophets at Mount Carmel. Then Elijah approached all the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people didn't answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I am the only remaining prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. They are to choose one bull for themselves, cut it to pieces, and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. I will prepare the other bull and place it on the wood, but not light the fire. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers with fire, he's God. All the people answered, that's fine. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Since you are so numerous, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first. Then call on the name of your God, but don't light the fire. So they took the bull he gave them, prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Baal, answer us. But there was no no sound. No one answered. Then they danced around the altar they made. At noon, Elijah mocked them. He said, shout loudly, for he's a god. Maybe he's thinking it over. Maybe he's wandered away. Maybe he's on the road. Perhaps he's sleeping and will wake up. They shouted loudly and cut themselves with knives and spears according to their custom until blood gushed over them. All afternoon they kept on raving until the offering of the evening sacrifice, but there was no sound. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near me. So all the people approached him. Then he repaired the Lord's altar that had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel will be your name. And he built an altar with the stones in the name of the Lord. Then he made a trench around the altar, large enough to hold about four gallons. Next he arranged the wood, cut up the bowl, and placed it on the wood. And he said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the offering to to be burned, and on the wood. Then he said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time, and they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar. He even filled the trench with water. At the time for offering the evening sacrifice, the prophet Elijah approached the altar and said, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that at the wor- your word I have done all these things. Answer me, Lord, answer me so that this people will know that you, the Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the Lord's fire fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. 
When all the people saw it, they fell face down and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah ordered them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let even one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the Wadi Kishon and slaughtered them there. Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a rainstorm. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the summit of Carmel. He bent down on the ground and put his face between his knees. Then he said to his servant, Go up and look toward the sea. So he went and looked and came back and said, There's nothing. Seven times, Elijah said, Go back. On the seventh time, he reported, "Eh, There is a cloud as small as a man's hand coming up from the sea. Then Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Get your chariot ready and go down so the rain doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew dark with clouds and wind, and there was a downpour. So Ahab got in his chariot and went to Jezreel. The power of the Lord was on Elijah, and he tucked his mantle under his belt and ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So, as a summation, here's the situation. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah had declared a famine of rain in the land. That is quite interesting in and of itself, because if you actually read that passage really carefully, it doesn't appear that Elijah is anointed as a prophet until after he makes that declaration, because there's a Hebrew turn of phrase there that says, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, and generally speaking, that phrase, the word of the Lord came to certain person, is an indication that that person has just become a prophet. But Elijah declared the famine of rain before that happened. And I believe he was indeed declaring the word of the Lord, but the written word of God, because he knew the word of God. He knew Deuteronomy eleven sixteen through 18, which says, Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. Fix those words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Now that was spoken to Moses hundreds of years before the time of Elijah, But Elijah remembered that promise, and I believe he declared that there would be no rain standing on Deuteronomy 11.17. Now, what followed Elijah's first proclamation was three and a half years of drought. That gets us to the showdown on Mount Carmel. And that day began like any other day of the 1,270 plus days prior to this incident, The James Ben Span, the weatherman of Israel, said there was a 0% chance of rain that day, and the skies were severe clear, as they say. And that means no clouds, not a sliver of a cloud, all blue, no clouds in the sky, and it hasn't rained for over 1,200 days. And here, after the victory on Carmel against the false prophets of Baal and Asherah, Elijah prays for rain. What happens? exactly what you'd think would happen on a day when you pray for rain and there's not even the wispiest wisp of a white cloud in the sky. Nothing happens. Zero happens. Now think about that. You pray to God for something, something like rain, that needs to happen right now and not later, and the thing you are praying for after you pray shows absolutely zero sign of happening. What do you do? I'd imagine that somewhere in the neighborhood of 90 plus percent of Christians 
would give up after prayer number one, if they were praying for immediate rain and there was not a single cloud in the sky or sound or anything. And just keep in mind, that was from a mountaintop view, no less. So Elijah's servant went up to the summit and he could see for long miles around And there was nothing, nothing, nothing. But Elijah doesn't give up. He prays again. He sees his servant, sends his servant to the best viewpoint around. And still, not a single cloud. Would you quit then? Well, Elijah didn't. A third time he prays and a third time he sends the servant out. No clouds, no nothing. Are you quitting yet? A fourth time. No clouds, no answer, nothing. I bet you're feeling pretty stupid about now. Are you quitting yet? Hopefully, maybe you're reminding yourself of the words of Jesus in your mind, always pray, never give up, and maybe you'd be stalwart and press forward, but I suspect that almost every single Christian alive today would give up around time number four, but Elijah didn't. He kept praying, and he kept sending his servant to look a fifth time, nothing, a sixth time, nothing, finally, the seventh time. The servant comes back and reports a tiny, tiny cloud. I can almost imagine him telling Elijah in sort of a sheepish, shrugging his shoulders way. uh, Because honestly, when have you ever looked up at the sky in the middle of a drought and saw the tiniest of stray clouds far, far away and said, "Uh uh-oh, I better go get my umbrella because the floods are coming? No, you don't think that. And, And the servant saw the tiniest little cloud way out at sea And he tells Elijah about it, maybe thinking, well, you know, I don't know, this might be something. Uh, But Elijah's reaction is, ah, the floods are coming. Because Elijah knows that God has heard his prayer. And Elijah knows that God has already said, I'm going to send rain. And sure enough, the skies open and rain falls like crazy. So what was the key to Elijah's prayer? Was it his fancy words? Well, no, of course not. We have no idea what he even said because those words weren't recorded. I believe the key is very, very simple. Elijah was an embodiment of perseverance in prayer. In prayer, He prayed and never gave up. And that's the example that G- James is pointing us to. Pray like Elijah. Now, one thing before we finish. My encouragement to you today, is, and to me today, is to pray like Elijah. Yesterday's encouragement was to pray like Epaphras. Now, that's a good thing, but it's an incomplete message. Remember that, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. So let's let pastor and seminary president, Dr. Brian Chappelle, explain to us the danger in a message that is only focused on doing good or being exactly like somebody we read in the Bible, like copying a spiritual giant. Because I think there's some wisdom here, and we all need to hear this. This is a message, uh, part of a message, that Dr. Chappelle spoke to pastors But if you're not a pastor, don't stop listening because I think this will help you understand the Bible quite a bit better. And I know it will help my fellow preaching brothers understand the Bible quite a bit better. Dr. Chappelle says, now you've heard of killer bees, but I want to talk to you today about the deadly bees, B-E apostrophe S. Messages that if they are preached, just as I'm saying them, just by themselves, they can actually become spiritually deadly. The first form of deadly bee... Uh, are what I like to call be-like messages. We identify some biblical character in the Word for the good things that they do in Scripture, and we point to them and say, follow this person, be like this person. Look at Elijah, be like Elijah. Amen, let's pray. 
Now, in the history of preaching, there's a whole genre that's known as biographical, excuse me, preaching, which is oriented toward this. We identify some biblical figure, we identify the good things in their lives, and we say, now this was given as an example for us, so follow this example. Be like this person, be like Daniel, be like Moses, be like David, be like Elijah, you know, David went up against the lion and the bear and he defeated them. He went up against Goliath and he beat up Goliath. He prayed that it wouldn't rain and it didn't. Then he prayed that it would rain and it did. Now, here's an example of a be-like message. Remember how great David was? I mean, Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with a sling? And David said, you come with a sword, javelin, and spear, and I come in the name of the Lord. And if the message is, you should be just like David, We say to people, well, except for that passage about Bathsheba or the one where he murdered her husband in order to have her as his mistress and then raised bad children. And then at the end of his life in pride, he numbered the troops as though his own hand had built his kingdom rather than the grace of God. And then you think, maybe we really shouldn't say be like David. Would David at the end of his life after he's committed murder and done all these things, would he say, hey, be like me? If David wouldn't say it, maybe we shouldn't say it. Okay, you say, well, let's forget about David. How about Abraham? Should we be like Abraham? Now, there was a man of faith. I mean, he went to the land he did not know following the call of God. He did all that was necessary to separate from house and homeland and family to listen to God and follow him to the land he did not know. You and I, we should be like Abraham. Well, Abraham did go to the land he did not know. He did it in faith. And you may remember that on that journey, He only gave his wife away twice to other men. Well, maybe we shouldn't be like Abraham either. And so the problem with being, with be like so-and-so messages, be like Elijah or whatever, is that they're tarnished heroes. What you should recognize as you study the scriptures is that care actually seems to be taken to point us to the sin of virtually every human being in the Bible, but one. And of course, that's Jesus. So that we won't turn to anyone but God for ultimate aid or example. After all, says Dr. Chappelle, what I wish we could put almost uh, in a neon sign in our times of study as we preachers are preparing our text, whatever we might be preaching on, is to say this, God is the hero of every text. If there are human heroes, if there is heroism on display, then it's because God enabled it. And ultimately, God is the hero. Virtually every person who is described at length in the Bible points us to our need for God, our dependence upon God, rather than our dependence upon human resolve or human will or personal righteousness. Be like messages where we simply say, follow this example. They're not wrong. They're just insufficient because they're not pointing us where the scripture itself is pointing us, away from human dependence and human power and towards divine dependence. Well, of course, you might object and say, well, doesn't the apostle say, follow my example? Now, the apostle does say that at least five times. But if you put the messages of Paul in their context, he says, follow my example as I follow Christ. Now, that's a redemptive concept that a redemptive context, there's a dependence being pointed to. Of course, there are be messages in scripture, be like this, um, be like that person, but it's necessary to identify their context and recognize those messages are not wrong in themselves. They are wrong messages 
by themselves, because alone, by themselves, they imply that the human person is the instrument of their own salvation or sanctification or rescue. The point is, salvation is not of humans. Salvation is not obtained in being like Elijah or being like Moses or being brave like David or praying like Elijah or whatever. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus and fruit bearing is by abiding in Jesus. I think it's good to say, be like Elijah in his praying. Pray like Elijah. But I want to say that Elijah can't save us and imitating Elijah can't save us. We need to be rooted and grounded in Christ and Christ alone can save us, sanctify us, fit us for heaven and enable us to finish the race. Amen. Well, let's keep reading. We're going to go to Psalm chapter 104, verse 1. My soul, bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor. He wraps himself in light as if it were a robe spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above, making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind and making the winds his messengers, Flames of fire, his servants. He establishes the earth on its foundations. It will never be shaken. You covered it with the deep as if it were a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, the water fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the place you established for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. They will never cover the earth again. He causes the springs to gush into the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They supply water for every wild beast. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky live beside the springs. They make their voices heard among the foliage. He waters the mountains from his palace. The earth is satisfied by the fruit of your labor. He causes grass to grow for the livestock and provides crops for man to cultivate, producing food from the earth, wine that makes human hearts glad, making his face shine with oil and bread that sustains human hearts. The trees of the Lord flourish, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, storks make their homes in the pine trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, the cliffs are a refuge for hyraxes. He made the moon to mark the festivals, the sun knows when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night, when all the forest animals stir. The young lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. How countless are your works, Lord, in wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, vast and wide, teeming with creatures beyond number, living things both large and small. There the ships move about in Leviathan, which you formed to play there. All of them wait for you to give them the food at the right time. When you give it to them, they gather it. When you open your hand, they are satisfied with good things. When you hide your face, they are terrified. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send your breath, they are created and you renew the surface of the ground. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they pour out smoke. I will sing to the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God while I live. May my meditation be pleasing to him. I will rejoice in the Lord. May sinners vanish from the earth and wicked people be no more. My soul bless the Lord. Hallelujah. Ezekiel chapter 48. Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern end along the land of Hethlon to Lebo Hamath as far as Hatzor, Enon at the northern border of Damascus alongside Hamath and extending from the eastern side of the sea will be Dan, one portion. Next to the territory of Dan from the east to the west will be Asher, one person. 
portion. Next to the territory of Asher from the east side to the west will be Naphtali, one portion. Next to the territory of Naphtali from the east to the west will be Manasseh, one portion. Next to the territory of Manasseh from the east to the west will be Ephraim, one portion. Next to the territory of Ephraim from the east to the west will be Reuben, one portion. Next to the territory of Reuben from the east side to the west will be Judah, one portion. Next to the territory of Judah from the east side to the west will be the portion you donate to the Lord, eight and a third miles long, and as long as one of the tribal portions from the east side to the west, the sanctuary will be in the middle of it. The special portion you donate to the Lord will be eight and a third miles long and three and a third miles wide. This holy donation will be set apart for the priests alone. It will be eight and a third miles long on the northern side, three and a third miles wide on the western side, three and a third miles wide on the eastern side, and eight and a third miles long on the southern side. The Lord's sanctuary will be in the middle of it. It is for the consecrated priests, the sons of Zadok, who kept my charge and did not go astray as the Levites did when the Israelites went astray. It will be a special donation for them out of the holy donation of the land, a most holy place adjacent to the territory of the Levites. Next to the territory of the priests, the Levites will have an area eight and a third miles long and three and a third miles wide. Then total length will be eight and a third miles and the width eight and a th- three and a third miles. They must not sell or exchange any of it, and they must not transfer this choice part of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The remaining area, one and two-thirds miles wide and eight and a third miles long, will be for common use by the city for both residential and open space. The city will be in the middle of it. These are the city's measurements. One and a half miles on the north side, one and a half miles on the south side, one and a half miles on the east side, and one and a half miles on the west side. The city's wide open space will extend 425 feet to the north, 425 feet to the south, 425 feet to the east, and 425 feet to the west. The remainder of the length alongside the holy donation will be three and a third miles to the east and three and a third miles to the west. It will run alongside the holy donation. Its produce will be food for the workers of the city. The city's workers from all the tribes of Israel will cultivate it. The entire donation will be eight and a third miles by eight and a third miles. You were to set apart the holy donation along with the city property as a square area. The remaining area on both sides of the holy donation and the city property will belong to the prince. He will own the land adjacent to the tribal portions next to the eight and a third miles of the donation as far as the eastern border and next to the eight and a third miles of the donation as far as the western border. The holy donation and the sanctuary of the temple will be in the middle of it except for the Levitical property and the city property in the middle of the area belonging to the prince. The area between the territory of Judah and that of Benjamin will belong to the prince. As for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west will be Benjamin, one portion. Next to the territory of Benjamin, from the east side to the west will be Simeon, one portion. Next to the territory of Simeon, from the east side to the west will be Issachar, one portion. Next to the territory of Issachar, from the east side to the west will be Zebulon, one portion. Next to the territory of Zebulon, from the east side to the west will be Gad, one portion. Next to the territory of Gad, toward the south side, the border will run from Tamar to the waters of Meribath Kadesh, to the brook of Egypt, and out to the Mediterranean Sea. This is the land you are to allot as an inheritance to Israel's tribe, and these will be their portions. This is the declaration of the Lord God. These are the exits of the city. On the north side, which measures one and a half miles, there will be three gates facing north, the gates of the city being named for the tribes of Israel, one, the gate of Reuben, one, the gate of Judah, and one, the gate of Levi. On the east side, which is one and a half miles, there will be three gates, one, the gate of Joseph, one, the gate of Benjamin, and one, the gate of Dan. On the south side, which measures one and a half miles, there will be three gates, one, the gate of Simeon, one, the gate of Issachar, and one, the gate of Zebulon. 
On the west side, which is one and a half miles, there will be three gates, one the gate of Gad, one the gate of Asher, and one the gate of Naphtali. The perimeter of the city will be six miles, and the name of the city from that day on will be the Lord is there. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We always thank God for all of you, making mention of you constantly in our prayers. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor motivated by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. You know how we lived among you for your benefit, and you yourselves became imitators of us and of the Lord, when, in spite of severe persecution, you welcomed the message with joy from the Holy Spirit. As a result, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, and not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen and amen. Thank you, Jesus, for your rescue. Good day to you, friends. Godspeed.